Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm John McEnroe. I'm Bjorn Borg. This is Martina Navratilova. I'm Mats Wilander. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. And you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Catherine, 1st of October, brand new season, brand new day. How are you feeling? Oh, I hate autumn. <laughs> this is the <laughs> Tennis Podcast. Brought you, in as- that, brought you in association with The Telegraph. We're going to be talking about loads of tennis. There's been lots of it going on over the past uh, week. Beijing has just started. Wuhan has ended. We've got other tournaments. We've got Bernard Tomic to talk about. We've got Arena Sabalenka. Loads of stuff. Uh, we've also got... Simon Briggs on the show. I spoke to him last night talking about all the politics going on at the moment, and there's a lot of it. He has been right in the thick of it. He's got lots of new things to tell you all about. So, uh, you know, do stay tuned. Don't ring off just when Catherine stops talking about autumn. Um, Before we get on to anything else, Catherine, I just want to mention the fact that I didn't say uh, this is the tennis podcast brought to you in association with The Telegraph and Amazon Prime Video UK, the home of the US Open in the UK. It is still the home of the US Open in the UK, but we're not brought you in association with them anymore not at the moment anyway uh, that partnership has come to an end um, they have been with us since queens which was fantastic for us brilliant support helped us to hire the newly graduated grad mat until the end of the year hence why our agenda has been so much better uh, not that we keep to it uh, but anyway uh, we've bought some new podcast equipment we're looking into the idea of maybe doing some podcasts from the O2 Arena. Uh, so just wanted to say thanks to Amazon Prime for backing us. Uh, the welcome back anytime. Um, and also, of course, Catherine, a big thank you to all our listeners who backed us via our Kickstarter at the end of last year and the start of this year. We've done it two years in a row now. We've produced, believe, believe it or not, we have now produced nearly 100 episodes of the podcast just this year. And it's only October the 1st. How are you feeling on the back of those 100 episodes? <laughs> Quite tired, um, <laughs> but uh, buoyed, buoyed by uh, the support. Yeah, we do have, we, we do have um, sponsors that come in and help us and, and uh, you know, we're, we're very grateful to that, for that. They are a significant part of what we do, but the fact is it wouldn't, it, it's the Kickstarter that makes it possible, that, that makes us know at the start of the year we're going to be able to do this thing for the year. It makes us able to, to make plans to, to make the thing as, as big as it can be. You can probably tell we're, we're going to do another Kickstarter. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's the bread and butter for us. It's the, it's the support of the people that listen. Um, and uh, it wouldn't be possible without it. So thank you, all of you that, that, that did back us at the end of last year. And uh, yeah, as Catherine says, December the 1st, we're going to be uh, hopefully getting some more support for you to, to produce the show again in 2019, weekly throughout the year, daily at all the Grand Slams. We managed to, I don't quite know how, but keep it up daily throughout the Slams all the way through this year. And, and as I said, we're, we're always looking to see if there's maybe extra things we can add on. We've done the Queen shows. We're look, going to look at the O2 as well to see whether that might be possible. Also, now, Catherine, last week we were talking all about the Labour Cup. And uh, one of the things that you said on the show, and, I, and something that, that I, I definitely agreed with to a certain extent, was about whether the Labour Cup was for 
the real tennis nerd, the real tennis fan, maybe our tennis podcast listeners, people that really love the tennis, or whether it was for more casual fans or more general sports fans that could just sort of dial into that particular event. That has really caused uh, a bit of reaction from our listeners we've had a lot of response a lot of people have written very politely to say that look i just don't agree with you that either i was in the stadium or i was watching on the tv i consider myself a tennis fan uh, as much of a tennis nerd as either one of you and and i loved it and and i thought there's just one email that we've received. We, we've, you can write to us uh, via our tennis podcast website if you'd like to send a longer message than just uh, the confines of a, of a tweet. And that's exactly what Sally Wells has done. And I, I just think this email sums everything up really in terms of the, the, the feeling out there along, among quite a few of our listeners. Sally says, hi, Catherine. I've, I guess I'm not part of this. Uh, I feel moved moved to challenge your assertion that the Labour Cup is only for the casual tennis supporter. Anyone who knows me is aware that I am the real deal when it comes to tennis nerdism. I probably share a common ancestor with student-graduate Matt and was stalking the exits of London tennis tournaments begging for reusable tickets when even David was in nappies. So I am part of this. I've not only listened to every one of your podcasts, that's 469, by the way, but I've listened to many more than once. I follow the tour, men's and women's, all year round, online if I can't get it on TV, with family holidays and birthdays having to be planned around key tournaments. And I love the Labour Cup. It is hugely entertaining, shows a side of the players and captains that we don't normally see, often a more playful and humorous side than they can let out usually. It's great to see the interactions between the older and younger players, and while I could happily live my life without the chest-beating of Jack Sock, it's great to see the skills of fabulous doubles players on show while the greats of the singles court flounder around. It doesn't need to be taken hugely serious, seriously as a tournament. It's a fun addition to the calendar. I enjoy the variety of the short matches, long tie breaks, and mix and match of doubles and singles. There's so much regular tennis, and you can often talk of the rigorous and arduous nature of the tour and the impact it can have on the mental health of players. It seems to me that all involved find it a refreshing change, a reminder of the fun and game, fun of the game, and friendships that i imagine can only be beneficial in the context of the pressured and peripatetic oh my god peripatetic am i saying that right peripatetic life they live i say long live the labor cup and i plan to be in geneva next year to watch it love the podcast by the way sally it's that is one of the best emails we've ever received um it's an absolutely brilliant email and i'm completely i'm completely persuaded by it we've had others along the lines of of correcting me about it being you know not for the nerdy tennis fan and um i think quite possibly i got that wrong um just blame sarah wollander good friend yeah i think maybe to to revise to revise what i said a, a, a bit i think maybe one of the one of the the biggest pulls of it, the, the the biggest strengths of it, is that I think still it would it will pull in the more casual tennis fan. I still think that the point which was made to be to me originally by Sarah Willand about the fact that if if you stumbled across it as a casual tennis fan on the TV, it probably would grab your attention, catch your eye, and and make you hover on that channel when you perhaps weren't intending to um so i i i I still think it has a power to pull in a casual tennis fan in a way that perhaps some other more meaningful traditionally meaningful tournaments don't but yeah i think perhaps or, or certainly definitely i got it wrong to say that it's you know it's not for the the nerdy tennis fan i think i think sally kind of does that thing of expressing what was in my head better than I did myself which is um <laughs> which is uh, pretty good you know just making the point that it, it, it you don't need to ram the meaning of it all down our throat for us to all appreciate it and say this has a place in the tennis world you know it it has a place as it is regardless of whether it evolves into being something anything like uh, the Ryder Cup of tennis. Now we've all just enjoyed the Ryder Cup, uh, the one of the most scintillating sporting weekends uh, imaginable. And uh, if there's anybody out there that's just watched the last three days of Ryder Cup and and is still willing to to put their hand up and say the Labour Cup is the Ryder Cup of tennis, then 
I, I mean, I'd love to hear how they're defending that because it's just not. But it it might be one day. I've no idea. It might be one day. It is not now. I don't appreciate being being told that it is being sold something that that I don't think. But it still has a place in the in the tennis. It doesn't need to be taken hugely seriously as a tournament to be a fun addition to the calendar. All the points that Sally makes about the mental health of players, etc., all really valid. It has a place. I support its existence. Just don't tell me it's something that it's not. Hmm. Very well said, Catherine. And uh, the good news is, if you are struggling for uh, summing up your own thoughts, I've got Sally's email here, so I'll pass it on to you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, email address. Sally, I'm, I'm, Sally might be getting ideas about starting her own tennis podcast. She better not. And I, so, I'd, pro- I'd probably listen. She's used the word peripatetic in an email. Yeah, I can't say it, but now I know what it is. <laughs> and afterwards, I'm going to look up what it means. Uh, so uh, Catherine and Sally are the new tennis podcast hosts because they understand how to say that word. I don't. Um, so uh, thanks for your for your email, Sally. Fanta- fantastic to hear from you and, and really interesting. Now, on the subject of the place in the calendar for things like the Labour Cup, it brings us on to the wider discussion of the Davis Cup, tennis politics ge- in general. And I mentioned at the outset of this show that I'd been speaking to Simon Briggs last night, the Telegraph's tennis correspondent, who was out in Chicago to cover the, the lead-up to the Labour Cup and, and to, to bring some of the stories from behind the scenes. He's also had an opportunity this week to talk to Wimbledon's Philip Brook, who is the, the chairman of the tournament and is very influential uh, in the fabric of the game. And... Uh, just fascinating on the politics of the game at the moment. But first of all, Simon also got a chance to speak to Roger Federer while he was over in Chicago. So what does Federer make of all the politics at the moment? Where does he stand? Yeah, I mean, he certainly said that he wanted to speak to Novak and Rafa and create a kind of unified position among the leading players in the sport so that they could have their voice heard. But um, it's a tricky one because he's certainly got uh, skin in the game, as the phrase goes now. He's not really an impartial uh actor anymore because for him you know this is his brainchild it's been really successful uh, it's it's got off the ground really quickly so for him he's got a lot invested in it which i think will will mean that he will be more reluctant to maybe to back the davis cup in its new incarnation than he might otherwise be particularly as you know the Cosmos team have maybe, I don't know if this is ill-advised or not, but they certainly made a beeline to try and uh, grab that week, two weeks after the US Open, as a potential finals week for the new Davis Cup. And uh, that was a pretty good way of making sure that they were going to get off, the wrong, get off on the wrong foot with Roger, I would have thought. Yes, yeah, I, th- I think you're right there. Now, since then, you've you've returned from Chicago. We've we've had word come through that the Davis Cup Finals is going to be taking place in 2019 and 2020 in Madrid. No great surprise, I, I don't think, uh, given um, the the Cosmos group is from Spain and led by Gerard Piquet. Um, it's going to be held in. Uh, La Caia Magica, the, the the magic box where they they hold the the big tournament in in Madrid. What 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 are your views of that as a venue? And and also, I mean, I think one of the things that has wound a lot of people up certainly is doesn't sit well with me is is the fact that there are wild cards at all. Those wild cards have been given to to Britain and Argentina. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, as for the Kaya Magica, or I'm not saying it very well in my Spanish accent, which is non-existent, uh, but it, it's um, it's an unusual venue. It, it has a lot of seats down at court level, which are uh, sponsor or corporate seats, and they're very well respected and known for the way that they treat their corporate guests. It's to the point where Wimbledon sent people off to, um, you know, look at the model out there because it was so. Uh, renowned as being the best in the world. Um, Having said that, sometimes those seats are quite empty and it can feel a little bit without atmosphere during the the Madrid Masters. But that might not be a problem in in this instance because I imagine, you know, it's obviously a three-day event rather than a a week-long and they might be able to fill them um, 
and keep. I think they'll probably work very hard to make sure those, the, that those courtside seats are filled, and you don't get that, that sort of slightly tumbleweed atmosphere that can develop sometimes in Madrid. So I think I think it'll be successful as a venue, uh, more successful perhaps than even than it might be during the Madrid Masters. Uh, and I've forgotten what the second question was. The wild card issue. Um, yeah, the wild card. Does it bother you at all? Um, well, I, I think, you know, in, in the context of what's going on, it's it's so far down the list of concerns, really, um, that I haven't got myself worked up about it yet. I mean, <clears throat> let's be clear that the big concern is, you know, this potential head-to-head clash between a Davis Cup finals happening in the third week of November and, uh, and a World Team Cup happening in the <clears throat> first week of January, which could begin, both begin, you know, in the next... 15 months or so so that's very much number one in my list of concerns um whether the davis cup is cheating in inverted commas by sort of breaking the impartiality of the of the system well um i guess this year they slightly uh avoided too much criticism by sort of picking Great Britain and Argentina um, on the basis that they were the last two teams to to win the event who weren't seeded and also have a strong travelling support. But it's very interesting they didn't pick Switzerland and I'm sure they would have done if they'd had any indication that Roger was going to play, but I'm pretty sure that he's not going to and that's why they didn't. Mm. So again, yeah. the politics is right there um, front and centre in the decision making of, of what you know might be considered to be a an impartial kind of um, level playing field that you might expect for such a, a famous event. Now, in recent months, Simon, I think I think you, you've alluded to it there that the issue of um, the potential Davis Cup followed by an immediate World Team Cup, and you've also got the Labour Cup. So, where on earth do we stand? And everybody's been planting their feet and grabbing their territory within that calendar. It seems to me, having heard some of the quotes of David Haggerty last week, that there's some thawing of relations, or at least uh, public utterances are such, that they seem to be giving themselves a bit of license to compromise here. And I know you've also spoken to the chief executive of Wimbledon this week, Philip Brook, and it seemed to me that he was saying something along those lines as well. What's your take? Well, definitely, there, I'm, I'm hearing there are more talks, you know, more quite important talks going to happen this week. Um, you know, the the level of sort of frustration between the players is quite high in the sense of, there's a sense in which people don't really trust each other at the top there and don't necessarily feel that, um, I mean, the viewpoints are quite, uh, they're coming from very different places. Uh, so there's some way to go before you're going to get any, everybody on the same page. And I think behind the scene, there's been quite a lot of, you know, fairly, what's the word, accusatory sort of fingers pointed across the boardrooms. Um, Wimbledon certainly were very unhappy with Tennis Australia's investment in the Labour Cup and in the World Team Cup. Um and Phil Brook, when he speak, spoke to him last week, he uh, he spoke quite a lot about the politics. And he said that the, the, the level of tensions were greater than he had ever seen in, in 20 years of working you know, at the heart of the sport. Um, unfortunately, he didn't have any room to put that in the paper because he uh, ended up writing about Serena Williams again. Um, but uh, it was quite a revealing quote. He also, he said that... Uh, there is a natural order to the sport, in our view. Um, and he said, call us old-fashioned, but at Wimbledon, we quite like most of the natural order that we had. And uh, I was saying to him, part of this issue is that you've got competing bodies and there's an element in which uh, commerce, you know, in, in this situation, is going to pit body against body, however much... You know, you try and talk about the good of the sport. You've got rival interests, and 
if one becomes more successful, it naturally almost takes limelight from the others. So it's very difficult to see how the structure can um, give us a, a, a sort of Benthamite greatest good for the greatest number type solution because you're all pulling in different directions. And, you know, he kind of came up with that line about uh, the natural order. But ultimately, he also raised the, the, the question of a commissioner, whether he said some people say, you know, we should have a tennis commissioner. But basically, we wouldn't want to do what we were told. I mean, he he, he raised it and then he, he said, well, you know, maybe we should be talking about it, but I can't see us wanting to give power to a third party and, and, and just take instruction from them. I can't see it happening. So he raised it, but he also said the, he didn't see how it could work. Mm. He also talked about the on-court coaching issue, which I remember back to their spring press conference, I think back in, in early May, when Richard Lewis uh, was was absolutely categoric that, that Wimbledon had no intention of allowing on-court coaching or coaching of any type. Uh, in fact, he, he, he said that they would like to enforce it more. And obviously, this has become a, a, a very significant talking point in light of the, the US Open women's final. Um, what was did was there a change of of tack at all? I mean, it, again, it seemed from reading your piece that there might and some of the other pieces that there might be some room for manoeuvre there. Yeah, I think possibly that some of the things that Phil said were maybe. I mean, it was reported that he was interested in the commissioner, and yes and no. I mean, he said that he'd like to see it explore, but he couldn't really see it working. So he he raised it with one hand and sort of knocked down with the other. In terms of coaching, I think it was pretty clear that they haven't changed their position and it's very hard to see them changing their position. The only thing he was saying, I think, is if every other party in the world is united, then I guess we might have to look at whether we give way. Um, but I don't think he sees that happening. He still thinks that the French Open, or the, I should say the French Tennis Federation, agree with Wimbledon. Um, and he, he, what he did say is that there's going to be a meeting, he thinks, before the Australian Open at which they, the stakeholders try and thrash out a unified position. And he's pointing out that technically the WTA um, on-court coaching system is a trial. That's the basis on which it's been approved because the, the rules of tennis still say you can't have coaching during matches. And it's been a trial that's been going on for eight years. And so, uh, as, as he put it, when does the trial cease to be a trial? You know, it's just been kind of a de facto reality that has grown up. But where is the evidence proving the benefit of this stuff? Um, you know, ultimately, there is two arguments for bringing in coaching. One is that it's going to add an extra level of interest. I mean, we've all seen that there have been moments when that's happened on the women's tour but it, it doesn't seem to be systematically the case, does it? And secondly, the, the other argument would be that it's unenforceable to stop people doing it. But again, I mean, that's it's not a great rule, is it? You know, you, you, you can't stop people smuggling stuff through customs. So, you, you know, <laughs> get rid of border checks. I mean, it's sort of, that doesn't sound like a convincing position either. So I think he feels that... Um, it's not going to be an easy sell for the people who come if that meeting happens as he says it will before january it's not going to be an easy sell for the people who come saying yes let's give the green light to coaching mm. and, where, and where do you think we'll end up in terms of talks around the davis cup and the world team cup do you, do you think there's a chance that, that the world team cup might not happen or that they might throw in together between now and this time next year and when that all starts to to come into view i think there's definite chance yeah i think we shouldn't give up give up hope for that um you know talking to some people who are high up they still feel that we're let's say at the low point of what's been a turbulent year and they still feel that by the end of the year people will have seen sense so that's quite an optimistic reading particularly as i've been talking about the way that the game necessarily uh, creates conflict between its rival partners but, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there who still think it's going to happen. It's a bit like Brexit, isn't it? You kind of, you're waiting for the, for the for sort of sense to prevail over the, the madder elements of the uh, political setup and, and hoping that uh, you're not going to be left with no deal. 
Um, but uh, I, there's, there's still plenty of action going on behind the scenes. Um, it's almost more a case of whether people who've, let's say, built up a certain amount of distrust and dislike even, I might, I might go so far as to say, are prepared to sort of swallow the ha- uh, bury the hatchet. That's the phrase I'm looking for, not not swallow the hatchet, bury the hatchet and, and work together. Mm. We watch with interest. Anything else of interest to, to report, Simon? What have you got coming up? Well, it's a quiet two or three weeks. Uh, and then, um, I mean, it's not quiet for the world of tennis, but I'm not going to Asia. Uh, my pal Stuart Fraser is going uh, to Shanghai from the Times. Um, I'm going to probably go to Paris and we'll be trying to pick up some interviews there for the uh, Telegraph supplement that's going to run ahead of the ATP finals in London. Excellent. Excellent. Simon, travel well. Lovely to have you with us here on the Tennis Podcast as always. Thank you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So Simon Briggs here with us on the Tennis Podcast. Catherine, fascinating insight, isn't it, into the kind of conversations that are going on behind the scenes at the moment. And I mentioned the David Haggerty element. He'd spoken to Russell Fuller from the BBC in which he was certainly talking about not wanting to go out on on their own or and there's been a lot of that already of course but it feels to me as though these big players in the game are now starting to row back and realize they need each other they need they need to come together to some degree and find a way of this all to to fit because at the moment you've got so many moving parts labor cupping thrown into that mix as well with the atp world team cup proposal uh, which is due to start early on in 2020 the davis cup finals which are now the end of 2019 and they've got to figure out a way to just make this thing work yeah, I mean, as Simon said, the comparisons with Brexit are extraordinary, aren't they? It's almost like everyone has to become fully acquainted with, uh, fully and horrifyingly acquainted with the the worst case scenario before uh, before getting acts together and putting egos and agendas and um, interests other interests to one side for for some sort of greater good it will never be the absolute greater good um because i don't think it can be but something resembling it um yeah it's no one's shying away are they from sort of 
uh, fronting up about how bad it's got relations wise um and Simon certainly wasn't shying away from from telling us about it there it's all you know what it is all so complicated by the fact that you have got the likes of, you know, Federer and two of the Grand Slams invested in 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 the in the Labour Cup, um, and you know there are so many um, compromised and um, conflicting interests going on. But it, but it doesn't mean that we or well, they can't can't try to put it all aside and and uh, and reach some sort of situation um, that that will that will in the end be be best for tennis and i think you don't want to keep harping on about the the Ryder cup because this is this is not the golf podcast but i mean what better um crash down to earth can there be for for all the currently existing team competitions or proposed team competitions than to have the Ryder cup having just happened and and showing us that none of what we currently have Davis Cup included in its current form potentially its proposed form are that or anything even close to that and that's what we're all aiming for and it's you know it's I think it's a reminder that that there there can be nothing not nothing better that I mean they they have just they've nailed converting a an individual sport into team competition haven't they would anyone have changed apart from american people would anyone have changed anything about the Ryder cup over the last three days david the the only thing the only other thing i i can think of is the fact that it doesn't bring in other countries from around the world and there's a there's a huge amounts of the country of the world that that can't necessarily be well certainly partisan about it because australia and asia and uh, and all those sort of countries and continents are not involved so but that's why i think the davis cup is so important to tennis because if there's a way to harness everything that's good in the Ryder cup and make it the davis cup which is properly worldwide imagine what you could end up with for tennis and i'm an optimist catherine i think that we can get there um and uh i i certainly hope so because it would be it would be the best the best result for everybody yeah it'd be great if you could take money out of the equation altogether wouldn't it i mm. mean yeah good luck with that <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, yeah uh, yeah but it's... i mean yeah i mean the 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 decision to the the decision to to host the 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 choose the kaya magica is the in Madrid is the venue for the Davis Cup. That worries me a bit. That that yeah, that worries me. I I think it can be a decent venue if if it's got enough people making a lot of noise and caring for enough of the matches. That that's the bit. It's just one massive. But, a, big but of all mark. the venue of all the major venues on the tour, that is the one that has the one of the worst track records of exactly what you've just said. Great crowds creating a great atmosphere i agree but they have a year to get this right now and to advertise it and to make sure that people know exactly where it is exactly what they have to but do they've to been go and doing see their that countries. they've been doing that with the the madrid masters for but it's not how, the same a as decade su- now as supporting your country it's like the world it's cup not, but i've i've seen nadal play there to to not i mean look the atmosphere is better when nadal plays but it's not what you'd hope for Nadal playing in it wouldn't look, be my number look, one choice I don't, I don't I don't want to to do that event down there's lots of great about it the people that run it is run brilliantly but I do think there is something fundamentally missing about that venue particularly if what you're explicitly looking for is a great atmosphere which unquestionably it is with with the mm, Labour's Cup yes. that is that is one of the things that's that's missing from it and speaking to people in, in Madrid that I do think do you think there's an issue fundamentally with the location of that venue and the difficulty of of people getting to it from from Madrid? I, I don't know. I I really I hope it pans out. But have they picked it because they think that's the very best venue option, or have they picked it because Gerard Piquet is calling the shots? Yeah. I I don't know. I, I don't know whether you noticed. I think you might have just called it the Lavis Cup for a second there, which is did I. M- did Mag- I actually? Magnificent, there, if you did. Have I, have I, in a Freudian way, come up with the solution? 
<laughs> Brilliant. There um, you go, guys. Incidentally, just the, just... the, the Lavis World Team Cup. Yeah. <laughs> as, an exa- as a reason for, for one of the reasons for my optimism over it is because I remember what happened when the Grand Slam Cup run by the ITF used to exist. And it was a 16-player event at the end of the year. I think it was in December. Um, and just an, ex- an obscene amount of money available for, for the winners of it. Greg Rosetsky won it one year, I think. Uh, Peter Korda won it one year. And you had that, and you also had the ATP Finals still, or the Tennis Masters Cup, as it was known. Eventually, they realised... To use the words of Chris Commode, it was insane to have two <laughs> two of these competitions in such close proximity. And they merged them effectively and they both had a stake and we now have what we have at the O2. So Scale of one to ten, David, how much do you think Chris Commode is regretting that particular choice of words? That, see, I knowing Chris as I do, I just think that is him all over. He says how he feels. And yes, Yeah, but he said that he thought it'd be insane and then proceeded with plans of insanity no look that but that's not going to be solely his doing is it he's he's going to have been forced into a position but at the same time it gives me hope that that's that's the clear position of 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 the man you know he's not going to sit there and pretend that everything about the proposals as they stand are great just because the players have have basically voted for that that's why i think we'll end up with a with a compromise that ultimately works i hope anyway so um that's optimist law yeah that's the politics like like optimist optimus prime yes optimist law do you see what i've done there i do thanks for that that was actually off the cuff i'm quite pleased with it yeah all right great uh can we talk about other tennis now not politics yes can we start with wuhan yeah because i I really enjoyed wuhan i was commentating on wuhan last week for bt sport and and it's it was really i mean at the start of the tournament we were still getting people screenshotting empty stadiums and putting them online and it was all a bit depressing and yeah there were i saw some matches where you're just thinking this is just not how it should be and then it started to change. The first time I saw it change was during the match involving Wang Qiang, who, who ultimately got to the semi-finals. Sadly, had to pull out with an injury. But she's made great strides. Really good player, good mover, just does everything well. And when she came into the stadium, suddenly there was a, a, a crowd and it was really loud. But then it, it wasn't just for her match. The, it, you started to realise as the, as the week went along, crowds were, were much better. It does appear that part of the reason for that is that they've built and improved the tram system to get to the stadium. They've also got a, a shopping mall in the area now, so I guess it becomes more of a destination to go generally. And they've just got an atmosphere. It's, it's not there yet. It's still an, an enormous stadium, but it gives you hope that actually this tournament has a future as a, as, as a place with an atmosphere, and, and that's really important. And the final, Arena Sabalenka beating Annette Kontovet, 6-3, 6-3. Well, first of all, it was, it was really quiet. There was a lot of people in there. There were thousands in the stadium. And the performance of Sabalenka, I know you've talked about it quite a lot here on the podcast, and, and others have as well. I think this week, this week is the first time I've really just sat there and, and taken it all in about what this woman is about. And I was I was blown away, Catherine. This this player, and you could tell talking to Joe Jury, who was the person I was commentating with, she does not need any persuading at all. This is a player alongside Naomi Osaka that I could see ruling this sport um, for years to come. She she's immense. She does everything well and in a frightening way. Both her power, her attitude, her intent, her appetite for the game. I don't think I've seen a player with this sort of appetite to just compete and play the sport and just take people on for a long time. I mean, I I almost and I hate doing this, I hate comparing female players to male players, but but I was trying to come up with a female player equivalence as a comparison but it was almost nadal like this sheer appetite for the game um I, I don't know what do you think oh i think she's awesome i think she's absolutely fierce and uh i love watching her play it's you know, i i know it's it's lazy to do these um what if things but let's remember that she she 
she lost out to Naomi Osaka 7-6 in the third, in the third round of the US Open. And that was the the only match, scoreline-wise, if you, if you look at Osaka's run, where Osaka was even remotely challenged. Um, she double-faulted on match point, uh, Sabalenka did in that match. It was toe-to-toe, incredibly close. She had come in as the New Haven champion, but for a couple of points in that tie-break, it could very easily have been Sabalenka that won the US Open title. It, it, it could have been. She's she's good enough already, I think, to be to be winning Grand Slams. And if... If the one question mark, and it, it doesn't mean she doesn't have it, it's just not yet quite proven, I don't think, in Osaka. If there is one question mark over her, and you, you've mentioned it a couple of times, David, it might be that appetite, that appetite for the relentlessness that it requires to to stay at the top of the game and be a multiple Grand Slam champion. Well, I, I mean, what, what's the opposite of a question mark, David? A, a full stop. There is absolutely... No question mark at all over that in Sabalenka. I just, I just think she's the coolest. I mean, Osaka's very, very cool as well. But I, I do you remember when the WTA did their "Strong Is Beautiful" campaign, and I despaired every day for <laughs> for the year that the campaign ran, David, and was very boring about how how much I hated it because I, I, I could see what they were trying to do. It was just so misconceived. They were trying to get away from the you know, the aesthetics are everything in women's sport thing, but it was so misconceived because actually the it, it suggests that the, the ultimate measurement is still beauty, that you're, you're converting strength into beauty points. And that is just, to, I mean, beyond missing the point. Well, I mean, it, everything about Sabalenka is strength. And, and I just think that is the coolest. I think she's great and there was a a wonderful uh little clip just i think at the end of the semi-final where she she was asked or it was put to her you seem to be fearless is that true and she goes yeah (laughs) she just there was no sort of modesty about it at all um overt a false modesty this was just how she feels she loves the game she has this appetite for it and uh, there's a in- great interview on the WTA website with Dmitry Tursunov her coach former top 20 player in his own right and he's a he's a cool cat as well he is not somebody who is just trying to he's the perfect kind of foil for her because there's no point in trying to push Sabalenka anymore she doesn't need any pushing she it just comes from within but he he knows how to to just slightly direct it seems to me and 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 take some of the pressure off her during the the matches he was cracking jokes making a laugh at the in the on-court coaching and he, he actually said that he thinks she could be somebody that changes the way the game is played or the way it's viewed in terms of her approach. And and he actually compared it to people like Serena and Selesh and Graf. I mean, look, these are all time greats and she hasn't actually won anything yet. I think we've got to say that, but you could imagine her being a massive impact on this game for years to come. Yeah. And it's a very watchable style, isn't it? She has this incredible power, which she seems to produce with absolute ease, but she doesn't deploy it all the time she's she's very controlled and um reserved with regards to the application of the power she's not afraid to come to the net her volleys can still improve but she's she's comfortable there and she's she's a better volleyer than than most on uh, on WTHR. i mean that is an area that it seems to really have just dropped off in women's tennis which i find such a surprise on paper i w- i would have thought it would be a uh, a tactic that would pay a lot of dividends in a in a lot of matchups, but it seems to have been neglected over the years. But not for her; she's determined to have a a, a very complete game, um, and I I so respect that about her. I love to interview her. I I think she's. I mean, can you imagine um, the sport having her and Osaka at the top tussling away for? For Grand Slam titles, with you know, with Halep and Wozniacki and and the rest of them there as well, but I think a rivalry between those two at the top. I mean, I just can't. What could be better? I just yeah. think that's brill. 
that would do. Um, incidentally, uh, Sabalenka and Osaka are four of the female players, 21 and under, currently inside the world's top 20 with Kasatkina and Ostapenko. And eight of the Grand Slam champions are under 30 at the moment uh, with uh, on the WTA side. Whereas on the men's side, there are no current Grand Slam champions on the planet under the age of 30 because Marin Cilic has just turned 30 and Juan Martin Del Potro, I think he has as well, hasn't he? Just amazing to think that. Yeah, yeah. And, and what the average age of them is 30, 33, something like that, 32, 33. Obviously, Roger Federer is uh, bringing that up considerably. Yeah, I mean, what a, what a stark contrast. Mm. What a stark contrast. I mean, you, you can make arguments that, each of those two that you know you can make arguments that it's people have made arguments that the the dominance still of Federer Nadal and Djokovic is a sign of the the weakness of the generation coming through and whereas the WTA is in the opposite situation that the generation coming through really are doing it but you could argue that the the supposed stars of the sport aren't doing it in in the way you do so I don't know I, I sort of don't want to get into which is a good thing and which is a bad thing no, that's, that's, it is yeah, what it is. So it is anyway, what it is, yeah. uh, Tashkent has also taken place this week. The the one couple of notables really. Uh, Anastasia Potapova was in the final. I think she was wasn't she a junior Wimbledon champion or she was yes. a, yeah. Um, so that's quite a quite a result for her. But actually, I, I'd rather draw attention really to the player that beat her in the final, Margarita Gasparian, who's a tall Russian player with a, with a, a dramatic flowing single handed backhand but who has just had the worst time of things the last couple of years. She's had three knee surgeries in 2016 and 2017, and she told the WTA insider, Courtney Nguyen, that if the third of those knee surgeries hadn't worked, she was prepared to quit the sport. So I think that's just really great to see that she's at a ranking of 299 in the world, 24 years of age, and has come back and, and, and won that title. I saw the moment she won the title, her opponent actually double faulted. And it wasn't a sort of celebration, oh, you've, thank goodness you've double faulted. She just dropped her racket on the floor and, and just, you know, disintegrated into tears. You could see what that moment meant to her. And uh, so, congratulations to Margarita Gasparian. Nice story. Talking of comebacks, Catherine, um, Bernard Tomic has won. Chengdu 7-6 in the third and final set having saved match points in the second round he then saved four match points against Fabio Fanini in the final as well first title in three years and honestly I'd almost forgotten about Bernard Tomic to be honest it's it's like I'd wiped the hard drive of my memory from mentions of him because he's not felt like a tennis player in such a long time and I just love the fact that he has quietly worked his way back. He's qualified for this tournament. He's won it. I don't know what it will lead to, but he gets such a hard time. And a lot of it is has been self-inflicted. He's he's frankly been a prize idiot at times in his career. But I also think he's been really badly looked after generally in in his upbringing as a tennis player one misstep to another a lot of them are his own fault I'm not trying to excuse his behavior but I I just feel that it's just become this massive pile on with him and and I'm pleased that he's managed to dig his way out and start to try to make something of his career whatever that might be this is a great moment for him yeah and look at the way he celebrated it it was I was actually quite choked up watching him celebrate that win because he's been someone um that that a bit like Kyrgios really has you know made out a fair bit over the years I think it's fair to say that he's not too fussed about tennis that he's you know if he'll do it he'll make a decent living you know he's referenced the the money he makes from tennis more than once in quite a crass way, hasn't he? But but he's not really bothered, you know, he's a bit too cool for it all. Um, and like with Kyrgios, I think that's all front. I think he cares a lot more um, than, he's, than he wants to let on. I think it's all the, well, not all, maybe a defence mechanism. And I think that those those turbulent times in his tennis upbringing are largely, you know, I can understand why he has a lot of front and uh, a lot of 
defense mechanisms going on because I really I know there comes a, a time as an adult where you regardless of of what you've been through you have to take responsibility for your actions and your decisions um and he's behaved appallingly he's done several things that are you know we can't excuse however it 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 it, it, it that doesn't mean you completely discard the the various motivations for how people behave. It still it still bears referencing and 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 remembering. Um, and I think I think he's lo- I think he's been lost. He's like a lost little kid, isn't he? And if you know if you don't have anyone decent advising you, how are you supposed to find your way? Um, you know, last last time Bernard Tomic registered on my radar was when he was going into Australian I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. Yes. And I just thought I just thought, all right, okay. <laughs> that is not the behaviour of somebody that is um giving any hoots at all about their tennis career. And then he if you haven't seen his celebration of winning the title um, in Chengdu, check it out on YouTube or Tennis TV or whatever it might be, because that's all the evidence that you need that this matters to to this guy um and i hope that he can look he's i'm not going to be putting him in my predictions to reach any grand slam quarterfinals again do you remember when i did that i do um, yeah you were so open about four <laughs> yeah, years ago i'm not going to get carried away but maybe if he can just channel it into something that he can be proud of in in 10 15 20 years time you know yes and that's very that's, well said yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. what it is it's about getting the best out of yourself so that you're happy with it and that you can eventually stop playing and think yes I, I i did i turned it around i did what i could you know everybody makes missteps and some worse than others and and i do think some good people have tried to help him in the past and he's thrown it back in their faces but look that happens too and Good for him that he's found his way on this occasion. Let's hope there's some more to come. ATP Shenzhen tournament. Lots went on there. Uh, Yoshihito Nishioka beat Pierre Ugobert in the final. 6-4 in the final set of that final. It was his first title. He suffered a bad knee injury last year. He was 380 in the world in April, was uh, Nishioka. So, fantastic job done from him. He saved match points against Shapovalov in the second round. Uh, also, Cameron Norrie had a good win over there in Shenzhen over Borna Chorich. Andy Murray beat David Goffin. That was a decent result, but eventually lost to Fernando Vadasco. Murray then cited an ankle injury for pulling out of Beijing this week. So that's Murray's season over with. Um, he will now put in two or three months of, of hard graft to try and get ready for the new season. And a little bit of British news here in Shenzhen as well for Joe Salisbury, 26 years of age, who won his first ATP title in the doubles alongside Ben McLaughlin. He reached the Wimbledon semis earlier this year, did Joe. Uh, he was ranked outside the top 200 18 months ago. Now he's in the top 40. So well done to him. And just a quick word on Shenzhen. I mentioned Vadasco. Um, this clip of Vadasco giving short shrifts to a ball kid and actually trying to get him to hurry up and being quite demonstrative and it didn't look very nice what he was doing there's been a clip going around social media everybody has had their say on it and really given him a big hard time over it what was your take when you saw it and and what do you make of it all well it's horrible the the the, it's the reaction of the little ball kid that's just so desperately trying to do a good... I wish the ball kid had just gone, thrown the towel back at him and gone, all right, hold your own sweaty towel. But he's so desperate to do a good job. And his little face nodding and going, okay, okay, Fernando, I'm 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 imposing my own words on this. Um, but uh, okay, Fernando, I'll, I'll do better next time. You know, I'm so, so sorry. Um, I, it, it, yeah, really really distressed me imagine if that was your your child yeah being i tell you shouted I, at, uh, i'd have oh. struggled not to come out of the crowd to yeah be honest, absolutely if, if his big moment his big moment on center court you know uh, oh just just look he's not the only or necessarily the worst defender we've we've seen it before no like djokovic has done it others have done it too i mean Djok- i remember djokovic because he ended up doing a big apology afterwards didn't he um i i Vadasco might end up doing the same because this has been so pounced upon on social media. Um, so I feel a tiny iota of sympathy for him because he is 
the scapegoat for a wider problem um, that's been building up, but so easily solved, so easily solved. Don't have a towel rail at the back, which is what they're trialling at the uh, next gen finals, isn't it? It is, just, yes. Just, just take that responsibility away from ball kids. It's not officially in their job description anyway. It's just evolved over time. And the players now expect that to be part of the services that the ball kids provide to them. Just just brief all the ball kids that when the towel is chucked at them, they just let it fall at their feet. <laughs> just don't, yeah. you know, it, it's so easily solved. It's it's such a bad look for tennis. It's gross. It's absolutely gross. Um and yeah, it, ugh. well, I think I think this will probably be just another little element that ends up changing that rule. And so, uh, yeah, let's hope that's that's the case. I agree with what you've been saying, incidentally. I do have that very small bit of sympathy for for Dasco, in as much as yeah, he behaved really appallingly, and everybody's had had a go at him. And I mean, my my experience of him, I, I I've, he's always been an absolute gent in in situations that i've had dealings with him in the past and and i'm not saying that that makes this okay or anything like that but you know he has been made the scapegoat and and but let's hope that the result of it is that uh, the, the the rule is changed and it, and it stops happening. Um, Serena Williams is out for the rest of the season. Uh, it's fourth year in a row that she's made the US Open her final tournament of the year. Not hugely surprised, to be quite honest. Simona Halep has re- retired uh, mid-match against Angebeur, um with a continuing back problem. So, and I tell you, there's a lot of the the WTA players at the moment pulling out a out of matches. I mean, the, the, the Derek Asakina I saw withdrew from a match. It's it's such a long season, isn't it? And we say it all the time, but you can see it. And that's why Sabalenka is so dangerous now. Fascinating matchup for Sabalenka against uh, Garbina Muguruza tomorrow. And there is a chance if Sabalenka were to win that match, she could still get to Singapore. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine if she went crashing into the Singapore draw. Yeah, well, you wouldn't, uh, and you also wouldn't, I mean, that's a sort of getting there on right, but you, by rights, but you wouldn't bet against it a couple of those that do end up qualifying for Singapore, ending up having to withdraw. True, so yeah. Yeah. she could end up sort of comfortably getting in, couldn't she? I mean, Halep, Halep's a really tough one because I don't know if you saw the, the comments that she made. She said that she was really psyched. A, a lot of people you see with withdrawals and sort of everyone, a lot of people just limping through this portion of the season, whether it's, you know, the Americans that don't particularly enjoy the travel to, to the Far East and, and the, you know, or whether it's the not having a, a grand slam to aim for the, 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 the carrot and stick thing, whatever the reasons um, you see a lot of sort of not quite as fired up players as you might otherwise see at this portion of the season. Simona Hallett said, I was completely fired up for for this last bit of the season. She said she was back on the practice court second week of the US Open um, after having lost in the first round, desperately, you know, trying to get herself in tip top shape. And then she just felt her back go um, last week. And she, it sounds like she, rather than sort of thinking, Okay, well, you know, if uh, if if I'm not able to to do my best this time of year, then then whatever. At least I've got some time to get myself right for next year. It sounds like she was really gutted because um, she felt like she was in a position to do something. Maybe in Singapore, hey, she could still do that. But it sounded like she was pretty gutted um, with putting her back out. So yeah, we'll see. But I mean, who I I think Sabalenka might end up squeezing in there due to. I don't know who it'll be, but I'd be surprised if there wasn't a withdrawal or two. Mm. Um, So I think, yeah, I think maybe better than 50-50 chances. Oh, I, I think she's got to you, be. You're pro- I think you're a bit better acquainted with the numbers. Well, than she's, I am. put it this way: she has to have a big run in Beijing, which means she has to beat Muguruza. There's no chance of it happening unless she goes and beats Muguruza. I don't well, think anyway. I, I mean, she's what? Well, she's ten. I think she will beat Muguruza. Ooh. don't you? Well, that's tomorrow. <laughs> By the time we all yeah. listen to this one, no. <laughs> Out of date tennis results. Yeah, news. we um, love all that. What are you saying? You're backing Muguruza to beat Sabalenka? No, no, no. I'm not. I mean, is anyone? Well, I, I mean, Garcia did it last year. Muguruza won today. The Wuhan Beijing double qualifying for Singapore. There's precedent. Mm. Very interesting. Very interesting. We watch with interest. Uh, Catherine, anything else? Oh, uh, 
no no right well you go and um uh, see other dogs that you can find this week what was it eskimo you were pictured with what was that dog eskimo the pomeranian i have to say a uh, beautiful looking dog um not the not necessarily the most sort of human friendly or animal friendly or friendly full stop dog i've ever had the pleasure of acquainting myself with oh well, he looks pretty happy to see he, you. He, he photographs well. <laughs> he did photograph well. Way. Yes, yes. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, Catherine will meet further dogs over the course of the week, and we'll let you know how that goes. And uh, we will be back with another tennis podcast next week. We have been executive produced by Melanie Bowes, Triple S, and TennisBalls.com. Our mascot, aside from Rosie, who's getting very jealous about all this mascot chat about other dogs and whatever, uh, is um, Charlie the Ferret. And uh, we are, of course, sponsored by The Manga Club. And we'll be back next week. See you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.